I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 60. Uh, let's go ahead and just uh, get right into it. I will bring in my co-host, Josh Long. Josh, how you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm all right. 60, that's a big... I feel like you should celebrate in some way. Should I? I don't know. That's a big... It's a multiple of 10, which means it has to be important. I guess so. Yeah. If this were a grade, I'm passing. It'd be 60th grade. Oh, you're saying like for a paper. Right, yeah. 60. Yeah, That wouldn't be a reason to celebrate. I can advance. It, That's I the guess, way I look at it. I guess it depends on who you are. If yeah. you're Billy Madison. What a weird movie is, to I'm just. I feel like that's. I always see that in movies where people are like, oh, I've just got to get my grades high enough that I can pass. And I'm always like, I feel like it can't be that hard just to pass. Like. To get A's or or even B's sometimes can be hard, but to like a sixty, mm-hmm. that's like lowest common denominator. So whenever I see those movies where people are like, common denominator sounds like something uh, a D minus student wouldn't know. <laughs> exactly. Like, what are you talking about? That's not on a football. <laughs> but uh, apologies to anybody who enjoys football. No, I don't enjoy football. I that doesn't mean just because you like football doesn't mean you don't know anything about math. But I mean, you know. You know, football math. Right. You know, like, like 10 increments. yards yeah. plus 20 yards yeah. makes a f- three first downs or something. <laughs> you know, like increments of uh, seven and six and three <laughs> right. and one. I, I always wonder every time I see football, all I can think is like, what would be an impossible football score? Like, I try to think of one where it's like the the multiples of numbers could never actually add up for people to have this score. It's actually harder than you'd think because you can get those two points if you get the extra point instead of like kicking the whatever kicking through the big yellow things let's say you get one point after you score a touchdown but if you like just run the ball in to get like another mini touchdown you get two points yeah so that can that can mess up the whole thing so it could be multiples of eight that works Okay, so you're not a football guy, it sounds like. No, not so much, but it's it's. Okay. I, I like to think of interesting things about it. See, and uh, and I don't want to insult people that like football, but it's a dumb game because here's the thing: uh, any game where, for example, our friend Josh here, where he has to start doing math in his head to enjoy it, <laughs> that you know it's a dumb game. It. I feel like, like with most sports, it has to depend on whether you have something, some investment or something at stake in it. Because I enjoy watching baseball, mm-hmm. but I can easily understand people who are like, baseball is boring. Because there's a lot of people just standing around waiting for the pitcher to throw the ball, waiting for somebody to get out of the dugout, whatever. Um, and that's 
I enjoy it because usually because I'm if I'm watching my team, if I'm watching the Phillies, then I'm like, you know, invested because I want to see him win. Since I don't really have a football team, if I'm watching football, it can be like I it's a lot of guys standing around waiting to attack each other. Then they do. And someone I'm going to blow your theory right out of the water. Oh, All right. All right. If I have any team, it is the California Angels. Yes, I recognize they're not called that anymore, but that's my team. And uh, I grew up rooting for them because my parents, which is to say my dad, rooted for them. And so that's my team. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can watch. I I don't care who's playing, though, really. Uh, You know, the Rockies could be my team, the Colorado Rockies or whatever. It could be a minor league. I don't care. Mm -hmm. I do enjoy baseball if I'm there. I don't I can't watch it on TV. Mm -hmm. But if I'm at the actual park, then it's a lot of fun. Um, Football, however. I was in uh, Denver watching football with my family uh, when the Broncos were in the Super Bowl, and they'd been in the Super Bowl uh, several times before and had never won. And this was the the first time, this was going to be the first time that they won, and then they won the year after as well. And so, uh, yeah, knowing what was at stake and living in the city that the Broncos were from, I did not care and i think i just played with uh like toys or something no i would be too old for that um i don't know i occupied myself in some way Hmm. but uh yeah i have didn't so i had no invest i I had a lot in theory i had a lot of investment in that and didn't care and Hmm. i have very little investment in uh i mean i i'm invested in the angels but uh, i really don't care what team i'm watching is you know I can I can still enjoy baseball. I'm I, I'm of course I apologize to people who enjoy football. I'm not actually I don't actually think that. Uh, I there are times when I wish that I enjoyed football because I see the people who do enjoy it, enjoy and it is a, a special kind of love yeah. there. Like I I run across people who enjoy you know who are fans of baseball, basketball, soccer, hockey, and none of them equal the fervor of uh football fans i've found so um and i don't know what it is about that sport specifically that brings mm-hmm. that out in people i don't know email me tyler at more than one lesson.com and let me know if you're a football fan what it is about fo- what is it about football specifically that you love and for for international listeners we're not talking about soccer yeah i, I said soccer earlier there's, right. cl- there's clearly a difference they might be confused well i mean don't be there's soccer, which is the thing you play with your feet, right? And there's football, which, which you don't you don't you use your, your foot once. Maybe you have the option of not. By the way, but there's only one guy who's allowed to do it. Yeah, <laughs> he's the king of the game. That's the way I look at it. <laughs> That's why punters make so much money. <laughs> but uh, so now we okay. So now we've offended Americans because Americans love football apparently, right. and, and uh, everyone else. Other, yeah, everyone yeah. else. Because they, they love football. That other football. They love football. Foosball. Now, foosball, that's that uh, game you play with, with the knobs. And you and, spin the knobs. Oh, man. What, that's a fun game. Tell me, a, you, you show me a good game that doesn't have knobs, and I'm going to be... I'll I call you I'm, a liar. I think I meant that the other way around, but I thought <laughs> I was just going to go with it. If it's got knobs, it's going to be fun. Absolutely. Pinball. Pinball's got knobs. Others, I'm sure. That's probably another one. All right. So uh, let me explain what just happened. I uh, 
I'm sleepy. I'm very sleepy. It's been a very busy weekend for me, and I needed to sort of ramp up to uh, the episode today, so we we talked uh, a little bit off mic, and now here we are talking about Football something I have, yeah, I have absolutely no reason to say anything about, <laughs> um, but here we are. If this is your first episode of More Than One Lesson, our It's apologies. not football talk. <laughs> I know everything about the website seemed like it was football talk. It's not where we talk about movies and God. So, all right. Two other things that Americans love. That's right. That's right. Go get them. High five. Yeah. So, um, all right. So today's episode is going to be about a movie that came out in 2007. It is called Into the Wild. And it is written and directed by Sean Penn. Or as his credit says, screenplay and directed by Sean Penn, which is off-putting. Because uh, I feel like it's a change in, not necessarily tense, I'm not sure what that would be a change in, but you're saying different things now. It's like two different types of sentences combined into one. Like, screenplay by Sean Penn is a real thing you could say. Directed by Sean Penn is also a real thing you could say. Combine them together and it sounds jarring. Yeah. I, I, I guess I understand why he put it that way, because uh, he didn't want to say written by, because perhaps he felt he shouldn't say that, because it's based on a book that he didn't story. write, which is based on a true story that he didn't live. Yeah. So maybe he felt he only felt like he could say screenplay by, and maybe he didn't want his, word, his, his name to be on screen too often, because it could have been two separate credits, but he combined them into one, so good for him. Um yeah, see, stuff like that is what you can expect when I'm sleepy, is that little uh, digression. But it is based on a book by John Krakauer. And uh, before we even get started, um, I do want to specify something. And we sort of did this with our uh, Fair Game episode, but I want to do it even more so this time. Um, as I mentioned uh, a moment ago, uh, this is based on a true story. I don't want to speak ill of the dead. I don't like to do that, especially... Spoilers. <laughs> I mean, it's... I guess so, yeah. I mean, can you, oh, can you imagine somebody watching the movie thinking like it's this fun, like, on-the-road type thing and like, Not oh. knowing what's going to happen at the end. Um, but yes, it is... It, the main character uh, dies, and it's a real thing that actually happened. And so that is unfortunate. It is tragic. And it was preventable, but it was even. And I think because it's preventable, I think people tend to look at this story with with a fair amount of judgment. And it's possible that we might edge into that territory a little bit ourselves during the episode. And that, and I, I apologize in advance if we do that. I'll try not to. And also, but the other thing is, we're going to be talking about the character in negative terms from time to time. I don't know what the real Chris McCandless was like. I only know this character from this film. I'm going to speak about it as if he were a character in any other film. As far as his actions and all of that. And so if ever we talk about one of his attitude, you know, an attitude that he, that we don't like or something like that. Um, you know, I, the only thing we really have is this movie. Yeah. 
and it, that m- the attitude we might be talking about may have been the actual person's attitude, but we don't know that, so right. we can really only judge it by what the what the film tells us. So, yeah. if the film tells us, and I guess by extension, if the book tells us that the character made this or that decision that we see as a mistake, then I think we would talk of it as such. And uh, and it reminds me of a of a story in uh, in college. I was in a class called Death and Dying. And it was a sociology class, and it was very interesting. And uh, one of the books that we had to read for it was Tuesdays with Maury, which I read. And this was at the tail end of my college experience. So I had done several years of film school at this point, and I had taken a lot of critical studies classes, which meant I wrote a lot of opinion papers. So then I read Tuesdays with Maury, and he just and you, it, you basically just had to give a book report and personal uh response in like five pages and so i wrote my personal response and i don't like tuesdays with maury i don't think it's a very good book and specifically the bits of wisdom that maury imparts i think are obvious and i believe in the paper i wrote that it was like something out of a hallmark card and maybe that's maybe that's the way maury put it or maybe that's the way the author summed it up but one way or another i i thought it, the film or the the yeah see already uh the book was much less profound than i'm sure some people found it to be mm-hmm. so i put all that in my paper and then i i went up to hand it in and then i stopped for a moment and i said uh can i get an extension on the paper and he said why i was like well you can see that i have it right here i have written the paper it's in my hand. Look. But the thing is, uh, I kind of forgot that this is a real guy and this really happened. And I think and I don't like the idea of speaking ill of the dead. And he's like, is that your actual response? Like everything you, you know, you're responding to the book. Is that an honest response? And I said, yes. He's like, go ahead and turn it in. And I was like, OK, there, I got that Hallmark card line in there. And um and it's just, it's something that I try to be, uh, you know, anytime you depict like a real person mm-hmm. in a book or a movie, like you are, you are inviting people. And I don't say this as a, as a flaw, but like you're inviting people to compare this character to fictional characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a way, this is a fictional character and I'm, I'm, unless it's a documentary. Um, and so, uh, it's something that I've always been kind of sensitive towards and I, I wouldn't want somebody to get angry that we are judging someone we haven't met We're we're not judging the guy. And I, and my hope is that we're not even really judging the character that much, but we are talking about a character in a film. It is unfortunate that it is a real thing. So moving on. Uh, so into the wild is about a, a young guy who graduates from college in the early 90s his name is chris mccandless and he is rich he comes from a well-to-do family and uh and he decides that he's kind of tired of that he doesn't like some of the attitudes of his parents and that sort of thing so he gets rid of all the money that he has saved over the course of college and just goes on the road 
Uh, first, he's in his car, but then he decides that is somehow not correct. He, that's not the right way to do it. So he starts hitchhiking, and he meets various people, and his, his idea is he wants to get to Alaska. Mm-hmm. And in Alaska, he will live in the wild just sort of to... It's kind of a cliche phrase, but to sort of find himself because mm-hmm. um, he's been living in this sort of Ivy League culture for a while and he's not really sure who he is. And so he wants to go to Alaska, live in the wild, see if he can do it, find himself, and then he's going to return to civilization. Um, and it's spoilers, I guess, but it's in Alaska where he gets trapped where he is, uh, makes a terrible miscalculation in the thing that he's supposed to be eating and he winds up starving to death. Yeah. And so that's the overall story. And, and because uh, that's that's the real story, I, I feel like the film anticipates that most people go in knowing that. So right. if anyone feels like that's too big of a spoiler, it's it's yeah. not really. It's it's more uh, take think of it as think of it like the Titanic. You're supposed to go into Titanic knowing right. that the ship sinks. Um and so uh and also I think at this point I just assume that if somebody's listening to this, they've seen the movie because we're we're going to spoil it at some point for the for the most part. So um, that's that is what I'm. I assume it's that uh, that way I can sleep at night with uh, the low numbers of the show. So um, so yeah, that's that's base. It's a very basic story, um, and it's a very, if you'll pardon me, a very American story. The idea of somebody from a very I'm reluctant to say a very safe type of culture uh, where they're sort of insulated and, and, you know, they are well protected from the wild and then casting that off to find something else. It's a very, you know, very Kerouac idea, I think, very uh, Hunter S. Thompson type thing. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, uh, the main character is played by Emil Hirsch, who is an actor who... Uh, it looked like he was on the rise, and certainly when this movie came out, it's like, oh, he's going to be like the next thing. Uh, and it never really happened for him, and that I think that's unfortunate. I think he's a very good, very charismatic actor who, in this film especially, shows a great deal of commitment to a character that is at times immature and not necessarily unpleasant, but like he, he has to be some, somewhat oblivious to the feelings of other people. And, uh, and so you, you sort of like him, you understand, you, you have to understand why the characters in the film like him, mm-hmm. but you also are, you also understand like, uh, he's, uh, not perfect and he makes a lot of mistakes. And so, uh, Emil Hirsch really commits to that and doesn't make him overly charismatic and he, but he also doesn't judge what the character is saying, mm-hmm. um, so I think I think he's very good, and then other members of the cast are uh, Marsha Gay Harden as his mother, William Hurt as his father, Jenna Malone as uh, his sister, and then v- the the various people that he meets along the way: uh, Catherine Keener, Vince Vaughn, Kristen Stewart, and Hal Holbrook. And it's uh, worth mentioning that the film was nominated for two uh, Oscars that year: Best Editing and Best Supporting Actor for Holbrook. And uh, so. I did mention um, Emil Hirsch's performance, but uh, I want to step back a little bit and get just general opinions about the film. Uh, well, just the two opinions, just uh, Josh's and mine. So <laughs> we're going to go through yeah. all the opinions that have been expressed about this. Yeah. So uh, just going to do. A good I think we're going to go out on the street. <laughs> um, 
But uh, oh, oh, you should so. start doing man on the street stuff, Josh. That'd oh, be that'd great. Be fun. I can do that. Um, so, Josh, I know that, and I will say uh, early on, uh, I like this movie more than I remember because I saw it when it, it was in the theater, and then I saw it in the last week in preparation for this episode. And uh, I remember liking it at the time, but having major reservations about it. Uh, and I like it more now because there are some things that I didn't quite remember as far as tone and as far as I think the philosophy of the overall film. And, uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say it's a great film, but I think it's at this point, it's, I'd say it's a good film. Uh, Josh, what do you think? I'm not particularly a fan of this film. Jerk. Um, <laughs> I saw it. I saw it when it was in theaters, and then I again saw it. Saw it again this week, and I think I had the same response to it that I had uh, when I saw it before. I feel like I felt remembered the things that I liked and didn't like about it um, in the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we want to talk about sort of the things that we like and dislike about it? Sure. Um, I feel like more of the problems that I have with the film are in its approach to, in its philosophy, I guess, and its philosophy regarding, uh, Chris and what he does. Um, because I feel like the movie is torn on, on, uh, whether or not, uh, on how it feels about him as a the decisions he makes in general how it feels about his decisions because i feel like most of the decisions that the character makes in the film are poor decisions Mm -hmm. and i feel like in my opinion the film for the most part presents these as uh worthy and necessary decisions and then when it comes to the tragic ending sort of backpedals a little bit. Um, I guess that's kind of vague. I don't know if that is specific uh, enough. Some of the uh, the the um, choices that, that he makes that you uh, think are wrong, but that you think the, the film deems necessary, uh, can you give specific examples of that? I think... Um, I feel like up until he gets to Alaska, the film is on his side. Mm-hmm. Um, even though that is his ultimate goal the whole time, um, he he's like, you know, he's going out to see the world. He leaves his car behind. He leaves his money behind. He changes his name. He leaves all his possessions. He doesn't uh, contact any of the any of his family. Um, I feel like it sees a tragedy in him not talking to his family and in him leaving behind some of the people that he meets along the way. But I feel like that decision is exonerated both in the filmmaking style and through the, the voiceovers, his sister's voiceovers, which I, I don't know how to see them if not as kind of the soul of the film. See, and I see it as the, uh, well. I definitely under, uh, agree with you when I when you say that the film has a, a tragic quality, um, not merely and not merely because uh, he he died though, 
Um, I think the idea of a person who feels lost and so like feels lost emotionally, maybe even philosophically. And so they choose to lose themselves physically, Mm -hmm. uh, out in, you know, in the world. Um, and so, uh, I feel like there's a tragedy in that. And I remember the first time not liking the narration this time around. I still think it's, you know, really, uh, you know, lofty and that kind of thing, but I'm kind of a pen movie. I I know. (laughs) Um, but, uh, but I'm okay with it now because it has the, there's a melancholy quality quality to it. And it has the air of it's the narration is done by his sister. Mm. Um, and it has the quality of, of, she is speaking in the past tense. And so it's done with hindsight. It's done with my brother died. Right. And so now, and so, and I am now speculating on how he came to this place. (laughs) And so there's not so much a, I I wouldn't say that the film really admires him. I mean, I think it does a little bit, but I think more than anything, it, it wants to think, the best of him, which is not necessarily a crime when dealing with your main character. Mm-hmm. And it has that vibe. I mean, earlier I was talking about like not speaking ill of the dead and it has that vibe to it because all, you know, the narration is done by his sister. And so she certainly won't want to think that he is irresponsible. Um, but that his choices eventually led to his death. And so they are by their very nature negative. Um, but under, they're understandable, you know, there are plenty of bad things that somebody does that I understand Mm -hmm. and I can understand how they arrived there, but that's not the same as me approving of it. Um, and so I think that, I think the tone of the film is, is a tragic one. And, and I think for the most part, I say I'm a fan of Sean Penn as a director. I'm trying to think, uh, what else he's done. He did the pledge, which I'm, which I really like. Although at times it's, you know, of course, a little overwrought. Um, but did I he, like that quite a bit. Did he also direct that uh, assassination of Richard Nixon? That he did he direct in? that, or is he just? I don't think. I don't think so. He acts in it, but I, I remember I was looking up the editor because the this film was nominated for an Oscar for editing, which I'll say I I don't agree with, but. Um, uh, I was looking up other things that he had done and he was the editor on this, on the pledge and on the uh, assassination, assassination of Richard Nixon. So he did not direct assassination of Richard Nixon. I had okay. to go uh, check on my shelf there. Oh, okay. But, um, well, maybe that's where he met the editor. Possibly. Yes. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I I'm, I think that his his choices are because I, I could see him very much being on board with somebody like Chris McCandless who, you know, rejects society and all these <clears throat> a certain type of value. Um, you know, if you know some of uh, Sean Penn's not merely his politics, but also some of his philosophies. And he does he does a lot of good work for people. Um, oh, and so good for him. But like also when you listen to interviews with him, like. Um, he does seem like he would admire the initial choice that Chris makes, which is to reject this type of, of a uh, upper class society. Um, but beyond that, I think he also understands 
Chris's youth and that while and that he makes these choices not totally understanding them himself think clearly thinking he does as we all did when we just got out of college or in some cases you know when we just get out of high school we think we've got it all worked out um and then i think as you get a little older you realize like oh i don't (laughs) i know very little um but uh and if you are an artistic person at all go back and and read like read scripts that you wrote or look or at pieces poems. of art or something yeah. like that. And yeah, oh, poems are the best, of course. Yeah. And just like, oh my gosh. And there is, you know, I understand there's like teenage angst and, and that kind of thing that uh, that you go through. It's a difficult time in your life. But you look at it and you're just like, oh my gosh, I really thought I had it worked out. <laughs> um, so I think I think he looks at it through that lens of tragedy and misguided youth and the idea that Chris... The choices he makes, I think the film understands that Chris believes them to be right for him. And so the film, being sort of hit from his point of view, it sort of takes that tone. But the film will also linger on the faces of the people that he is leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, the, the one that I will bring up, because um, he makes friends with various people uh, throughout the film. But I think the most notable is a couple played by um, Catherine Keener and Brian, I don't know how you say his last name, uh, Dierker. Dierker, I'd say Dierker. Um, and she play, uh, it's, a, it's this hippie couple uh, named Jan and Rainey. Rainey. Yeah, and, uh, and I will say, by the way, that uh, this film has a lot of hippies in it. So, and hippies, of course, means nudity. So, keep an eye on that. Um, the hippies aren't, well, yeah, I guess you're right. In this, a certain type of hippie. Yeah. Um, you see different types of hippies. And uh, if you are a hippie hippies. listening to this, uh, I apologize. Um, <laughs> maybe you don't enjoy getting nude, but having watched having watched uh, a movie like Woodstock and then watching this, it's just, it does seem to be a common denominator. Or there. Gimme Shelter. Yeah. Well, okay. Okay. I got to move on. I'm sorry. Um, but um, <laughs> Enough about nude hippies in film. Yeah. Uh, there's a whole episode in there. Um, but yeah, so Jan and Rainey, they, you know, they're driving uh, cross country in their, uh, their big Winnebago with uh, peace and love and stuff painted on the side of it. And, uh, and I, I, I like how much time this, the film spends showing that their lives are not perfect mm-hmm. and that uh, they're, a, they're a couple, but they, you know, they fight. Things aren't always going well for them. And, and I think there's supposed to be something of a parallel between them and uh, Chris's parents because they're fighting all the time about money and about all this and his father's really domineering and, oh, it's so terrible. Oh, but these hip, you know, this, this hippie couple, I bet they've got it worked out and you, def- you discover they don't, mm-hmm. that they still fight as every married couple does. And, and then you find out some of uh, Catherine Keener's uh, background that she has a son that would probably be about Chris's age, maybe a little bit younger. I don't totally remember. Maybe a little older. Um, and that she hasn't seen him in two years, which incidentally is, I believe, the amount of time that that elapses between Chris leaving and and just leaving his family behind and his eventual death. And so, um, so like she tells this story to him and you see a little bit of discomfort in him like he's feeling a bit 
convicted. Uh, that's probably not the word he would use. That's kind of a, a Christian type word, but he's feeling kind of bad about that. Um, and then even when I think his connection is more with her than with Rainey, but even then, uh, Rainey is talking to him about his parents and he's like, ah, you know, kids can be pretty tough on their parents sometimes. And which is exactly what Chris is being. And it sounds like his parents, I mean, based on the story, his parents certainly are not saints. I mean, they, uh, there's a lot of secrets in their family and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, and it can seem somewhat hurtful, I suppose. And, uh, you know, I can't relate to it and, and I might, I, I probably wouldn't have done what he did, but you know, it's, you come to realize that his circumstances, it's not like they were wonderful and he just didn't understand them, hmm. um, or didn't appreciate them. Like there is a, a certain sense of betrayal and secrecy and not being open with one another in the family that he comes from. But then he discovers that people who are more philosophically similar to him, they have the same problems, hmm. but he still picks up and leaves because he feels like he's got to do it. And then the way the camera f- focuses on Catherine Keener's face. I mean, she looks sad, but she also looks a little hurt. Mm-hmm. And and that happens various times throughout the film. He will meet someone and uh, have something of a bond with them, but then he has to go. Um, whether for practical purposes, like the police are after him, the, mm. the boat police or, uh, Here come the boat police. <laughs> I don't think that's a, a phrase in it, but, uh, it should be. Um, also, I have to say that that is a, sometimes I get hung up on practical things in movies that I just shouldn't worry about cause it's a movie. Mm-hmm. But, uh, in the scene where the boat police catch him, they're coming around the corner. He's in a kayak. They're in a motorboat. Yeah. So he starts like, uh, rowing away from them. Next shot, he is on top of a mountain pulling his canoe, and we see the the police motorboat pulling across in the bottom. It's like, that would take a good half an hour at least to get up to the point where he was, and that boat was right behind him. It was like mm-hmm. two minutes by boat. Maybe it wasn't right behind him. He was in a canyon. Maybe that, uh, there's echoes. No, because you, you see, because you're looking from the point yeah, of view I guess of the people right on there, the, yeah. it doesn't make any sense. Maybe yeah. they Maybe they passed by and they were going back again because they missed him. And maybe they stopped and talked to those weird foreign hippies. To the naked Danish people. Yeah. Um, um, and, uh, and talked with them for a good hour and a half. I feel like they could have been very distracting. I could see that. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, and so I feel like uh, that, and then of course, uh, probably the most notable, and this is a little later in the film as you were talking about, mm-hmm. uh, he befriends uh, an older guy played by uh, Hal Holbrook who talks about his own life and that he had a he had a wife and a and a child and they were killed by a drunk driver and so he's been kind of by himself and he seems mostly content but then when he meets Chris he I mean you get a real sense of like oh he is feeling he suddenly feels very lonely when he sees what his family what family could have been for him and he's just he longs for it so much, and then you you contrast like that with Chris, who has a family and is just willingly leaving them, mm-hmm. and and you think like, and, and his family does care for him. We do see them like really lamenting the fact that he is gone, and they don't know where he is, and they want to find him. They you know, uh, there actually is love there. And so, 
don't know. It's and I think uh, earlier in the film, I think Catherine Keener says to uh, uh, Jan's character, she says to uh, Chris, she's like, "You seem like a loved kid," mm. you know, and so. I think he he is responding to his the way he sees certain events in his family and certain attitudes that I think are there. But I think the film throughout is communicating that he is overreacting. I mean, characters say it's like kids be too hard. Kids tend to be too hard on their parents. You seem like a loved kid. Forgiveness is important. My you know, I haven't seen my son in two years and I miss him. You know, it's like, it seems to perpetually, like, even though the film's from his point of view, it does seem to regularly be taking the point of view of the people he left behind, even in the people that he's meeting in the present. And so, and that was something that I had forgotten. Um, And in watching it again, I realized that the structure, because I was kind of where you are, I thought that the film was completely on board with him and said like, yeah, man, he's sticking it to the man and all that kind of thing. Um right up until he meets uh, Hal Holbrook's character, Ron. And, uh, but in watching it this time, there's like little, there's just little like whispers. It's like one line here, one line there. But when you look at the complete picture, you see that, you know, the film does seem to believe in God. um, Because, and Chris seems to believe in God as, as do other characters. And it's almost as though, and I'm not saying this just because I'm a Christian. Like they do specifically say God and you know the good Lord and that sort of thing. And so Chris does believe in God, and it seems as though God is perpetually giving him the message: "You are loved. Forgive your family, and your parents are probably heartbroken at not having seen you. Go back home, mm-hmm. or at least call them, or something like that." And so. So that's what I got on the, on the second viewing. Uh, now, what do you think about that? Well, I feel like those I, there there are those voices in there that are telling him that yes, you have to uh, you have to forgive your family. Uh, while I feel like the film may agree that he should forgive his family, I don't really feel like the film is saying that he should that he should go back to them now, mm-hmm. or that he should stay with any of these people to connect with them. I feel like the film is saying that he is doing the right thing by moving, moving, his, making his way to Alaska. I feel like it sees it as sad that he's leaving these people behind, but it sees it as necessary. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like it sees it as a tragedy because of a person's decisions, because that's what I, I feel like the true story is. Mm-hmm. Because of the decisions that he made, both in not forgiving people and in this commitment to getting to Alaska, because that's where he would find, you know, truth. Yeah. Um, that uh, I think that in doing that, he hurt a lot of people. And I feel like the the movie, uh, I, I think the narration says straight up at one point, like he had lived in this world of lies and what he needed was to find truth. Mm-hmm. And so I think this movie sees his move to Alaska as his search for truth. And the people that he leaves behind, it does linger on them and show them uh, show that they they are sad to lose him. But I think it's almost in the same way that the little kid is sad to see Shane leaving at the end of Shane. Like yeah. he ha- he has to move on to the next town and help the next people and like open people's eyes. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's the way the film sees him. Um, uh, because I feel like every step that he goes along, he's sort of like, you know, when he first meets Jan and Rainey, 
he says something to both of them to kind of like rekindle, like they're having a fight and he's right. able to like get them out of the fight. And then next thing he's, he's gone in the morning and it's like, uh, my work here is done. Exactly. Like that's, yeah. that's the way that I felt about it. And, um, I, you could almost say the same thing with the, the scene where he has with, uh, Vince Vaughn where they're in the bar and he's, he's talking to Vince Vaughn about what it's going to mean to like get to Alaska and like, get away from society and how society has all these problems and he gets Vince Vaughn all kind of fired up about it. Yeah. Like, I feel like he's, he's there inspiring someone else. And the, while while I think that might be an interesting story and I don't, I don't think that makes it a bad movie at all. I think that's just where I disagree with the philosophy of the film. Um, and I think the point where I where I the most disagree with it, I I don't remember this from before. Maybe I didn't realize it before is with the Hal Holbrook character specifically when um, one of the last scenes they have together is uh, uh, Chris's character. Well, Chris climbs up onto the top of this mountain. He's talking to uh, Hal Holbrook's characters further down the mountain and. Talking more about Alaska and how Holbrook's character says, "What are you running away from?" Mm-hmm. And um, Chris sort of turns it around and asks the old man, "Like, well, what are you? I know what you're running away from. You're you're running away from uh, from your life. You're hiding in your house. You're mm-hmm. not you're not looking for new experiences." You're, and I think he quotes Thoreau somewhere in there, and uh, some some kind of quote where he says that experiencing life or the joy of life or whatever comes from new experiences. Um, and instead of, instead of, I feel like that's the point when Hal Holbrook's character, whether Chris agrees with him or not, could have turned to him and said, there's a lot more to life than building your experiences. There's a lot more to life than going out and seeing the world and experiencing things. Mm-hmm. But that's not what happens. The film instead chooses to have Hal Holbrook literally come to Chris's level. He says, Oh, I'm just the old man sitting on my butt. I will watch this and climbs the mountain mm-hmm. up to meet Chris. That's the end of the scene. That's not the absolute end of the scene. There, there is a part where they talk at the, they talk at the top of the mountain a little bit about, um, forgiveness and God's light shining on you. Yes. <laughs> okay. And it is that because of the way the scene ends, which you seem to want to just brush over. Um, and, and, I actually, because I get the impression that uh, Hal Holbrook's character is a Christian mm-hmm. um, or Catholic or uh, Catholic, I believe, yes, because mm-hmm. he mentions mass. Yeah, um, but a you know a practicing Catholic and a believing Catholic, um, and so, frankly, like I like that scene a lot from a from a, an artistic perspective and a character perspective, but also from a from a Christian perspective, it's. I don't know. It's it's almost one of those things where I feel like we could learn something from his approach because he does meet Chris where he is. He listens to what Chris says up there because Chris then says, he's like, you know, you got to learn that other people aren't, uh, they're not the key, you know? That's, uh, once you learn that, you'll be a lot happier. And he just says it and you just see, and uh, you know, this is a lot of, you know, Hal Holbrook being awesome. You just see like in his eyes, like just kind of a, a sad, like, Oh, if only you knew, like you can say that now because you have any number of people you can turn to, you lose them. 
and you will suddenly realize how valuable they are. And he eventually does. Yeah. But um, and I, I mean, I do think, and that's that, all in his eyes, by the way. Like, in in Hal Holbrook's eyes, like he never actually comes out and says it. Instead, he says like he's like, "I'll think about that. I really will." Mm-hmm. However, and then he talks about forgiveness, and he's like, "When for, when we forgive, we feel God's light shining on us." And then, like in kind of a cheesy moment, but I liked it. Uh, at that point, the like because it's a cloudy day, and at that point, like the a cloud roll you know rolls back, and the sun shines on them, and they both like laugh and think that's. You know, they think it's kind of uh, funny and amazing and all that sort of thing. What? Sun is shining on Josh right now. Yeah, I got kind of a beam of light going on here. Because I have uh, I have forgiven him. That's oh, because I just forgave Tyler for his... For liking the movie? Yeah, there, there you go. <laughs> um, no, and I, I feel like it is clear that the film, by the end, recognizes his... Uh, and, and I think I could maybe say throughout, recognizes that it's not good that he's he's hurting that that he's not forgiving his family but i feel like it still sees it as necessary that he went on this trip and that he went to alaska and that's that's the disconnect that i don't like in the film i think like at the end it's it's clear that the message in the end is trying to be he does need people because he writes in his notebook happiness only real when shared mm-hmm. and um in one of the passage i think he's reading a dostoevsky novel i'm not sure which yeah but the word people sort of jumps out at him yeah. uh physically which is a filmmaking technique i i don't like there are some other little things in there i don't like but uh but it's clear that the point is there's something about people and um in his last moments he is he's thinking about his parents yeah um so that's there but i feel like the film's unable to recognize I feel like because it sees his search for truth and his search for truth being his trip to Alaska as so vital to him and so important to him mm-hmm. that it it misses the fact that doing that in this situation means uh, ignoring these people. Yeah. And I feel like that there's a disconnect there that, that I don't philosophically like. Like, I feel like... Uh, as much time as it spends glorifying his trip, I mean, there and this this is again another technique thing that I don't like. But there's a good, the movie's got a solid twenty, maybe thirty minutes of montages of Chris enjoying nature, whether mm-hmm. he's kayaking or hiking or uh, looking at the animals or or there. There's a lot of that happening. So there's, I mean, I, I feel like I can only take that as the film showing us that this beauty and this wonder and something positive. Um, I feel like in that it sees this, this trip as something good. Whereas to me, philosophically, I see the whole trip as something bad. Hmm. I don't know. Cause I, I feel like there could be a balance between the, between the good and the bad. And maybe, maybe it's because I feel like it overemphasizes the good mm-hmm. in it. Um, and I, I don't know. and I think it to a certain extent I feel like it should emphasize that like view it as a positive experience because for him it is a positive experience and That's he's true. periodically being told things that he doesn't like or doesn't agree with and then only at the end does he realize oh I why didn't I listen to all that stuff um like why was I so focused on this stuff that admittedly was fun and beautiful at the time but now here I am in a school bus in Alaska starving to death you know um 
I, I feel like perhaps I don't know. Maybe it makes the ending or the the philosophical conclusion of the film. Maybe it makes it more satisfying or more heartrending when we see all the beauty in it and we're sort of pulled in by it, mm-hmm. and only to realize, oh, we. We were we went on the same journey he did, and we didn't listen to anybody either. But now here we are, and maybe that's the film's intention to have you on his level, enjoying everything in that way. Yeah. But I feel like I I was not, and it didn't ex- succeed in that level. I think because uh, maybe because of his attitude in the initial leaving, mm-hmm. because I feel like I disagree with his attitude so much, and to me he seems like a spoiled, rotten kid from the beginning. And right. maybe the filmmaker's coming from a standpoint where. He's, he can see that exact same scene where uh, Chris sort of tells off his parents and think no. and, and be exhilarated by that and think, great. Whereas I'm on the other end of that spectrum. I'm saying, like, listen, kid, <laughs> I understand you're frustrated, but you're 21 years old. Yeah. Um, Which they I mean, they do a little bit like they because the filmmaker can't walk into the film and say, OK, let me explain. You know, I mean, <laughs> if you want that. You can watch Grizzly Man, <laughs> which actually this this movie has a lot of interesting parallels to Grizzly yeah. Man. And I feel like uh, I, I want Werner Herzog to sit Sean Penn down and, and explain nature to him because I <laughs> as kind of odd as it is. I love the part in Grizzly Man where Herzog comes on and, and explains why he disagrees with uh, Timothy Treadwell about yeah. nature. <laughs> I think it's fascinating. And I think. Uh, in a lot of ways, I agree with what Herzog is saying about the chaotic, the chaotic nature of nature. I uh, I think I agree, but there's just something about his voice that makes it seem like an extreme I can't possibly get on board with. Yeah, it, <laughs> it seems it does seem a lot like he's a he's a villain in some sort of <laughs> some sort of movie. Like, doesn't it seem like that's the monologue that Doctor Moreau would say <laughs> right before it's like? So I have decided to control nature. Yeah, <laughs> um, but. Uh, but yeah, and so, you know, Sean Penn can't just, st- he doesn't have the option of stepping in through his own narration as, as Herzog uh, did with uh, Grizzly Man. So I think throughout you get scenes of, like in that scene that you're talking about where Chris is telling off his parents and talking about like, you know, the stuff that I'm sure we all said at one point of, uh, you know, it's like, oh, all these things, man. It's all about... He doesn't say man. I'm sorry for making him sound too hippie-like. I apologize. Rainey would say that. Yeah. Uh, but that kind of that tone of like... It's like, oh, th- he says the word things like five times, and he kind of gets a little bit louder as time goes on. Just like, things, things, things. It's all about things, you know? And he's getting worked up, and you actually see... And it's one... Th- and... I think the cam. I don't know. I there's just something. The tone in that moment seems to be like, okay, he's getting carried away, like he's being whatever. And then you actually see his sister like put her hand like I think on his leg, and like he looks over and she gives him this look of like, okay, that's enough. Mm-hmm. Like you're you're going overboard now. Mm-hmm. And I think the film. I think it is. I think it, Sean Penn likes Chris McCandless, sympathizes with him, maybe even empathizes with him. But I think throughout, I think Penn feels the feels the need to at least have little moments of uh, like a grounding influence, even if it's just his sister giving him a look, like, "Okay, that's enough," or someone saying, "Like, you know, kids aren't 
good enough to their parents or I think you're loved. Like it's just a little sentence here and there as much as I'd say Chris in the film is willing to hear. Uh, and so I think even in that scene, you get, you get the director's hand a little bit saying, I agree with him, but maybe not to this extent. You know, I think maybe the, uh, not maybe, I think the film definitely agrees with him philosophically, uh, but not to, but finds his extremes tragic, mm-hmm. you know, and philosophically, I think I agree with some of his, uh, points here and there. Mm. Um, and, and I very much understand the need to, or the perceived need to get away from things sometimes, uh, not in spite of people, but just there are times when like, I mean, I have, I live in Los, I, I live in a city. I have a wife, I have friends, I have a job responsibilities. I like all of those. And I like my life for the most part. But there are times when it's just like, oh, I just I just want to jump in my car and just drive across the country and get in adventures. My adventures would be pretty boring. It would be it really just be like, hey, what movie's playing here? Like it's it's mostly that. But like and I like I love you and I were talking uh, off air. I love airports. I love hotels and motels of all kinds. Mm. Um, There's just I, I actually really like travel. And like seeing new places, as I as I said on uh, Mike Siegel's Travel Tales, um, every like there are, there are cities that you'll drive or towns that you'll drive through that have like a population of like nine hundred, mm-hmm. and it's a town that it it live it, it exists primarily because there's a freeway right there, and so its its whole economy is based on like you know burger places and motels and gas stations, you know people passing through. I remember. <laughs> driving through one of those and being like, I want to just live here for like a year and just see what it would be like to live in this place. And just like, I have those thoughts, and so, but then I'm just like, that's dumb. Not to imply that people <laughs> well, who live there are dumb, but no, no. for me to live there, it would be dumb. Yeah. And that, I, that's what I feel like. I like the idea of, of traveling and even, even the idea of like, I don't think there's anything wrong with finding new experiences. And mm-hmm. I think there can be something said for finding yourself, even if, even if that means separating yourself from what's normal to you. Yeah. But I feel like what Chris is doing is is doing it to to buck society. Yeah. Because I feel like at different levels, he's not just just looking to like learn more about himself. He's looking to fight against society. Well, and, and I'm sorry, go on. And, and there are times when I think his actions are specifically foolish in the film, like when there's a scene when he goes whitewater rafting yeah. with no experience and, and no helmet and no helmet which is a stupid idea but nothing yeah. in the film ever says that it was a stupid idea right. he says later oh it's one of the scarier things that i did but there's like a rousing banjo score or something playing while he's going through it's clearly like this movie thinks that this is dangerous the same way that that dukes of hazard thinks that car tricks are dangerous like it's it's clear that like it's glorifying this sort of action and it's almost like yeah that could have just as easily ended in his death as not and then we wouldn't have that like this is a fun experience in retrospect it's fun because he lived through it exactly you know and And if if he had actually died in the river there and this movie were about that that scene i'm sure would be played differently and would be played more tragically but he in this scene is making the same the same decision that he does when he goes to Alaska by himself. Yeah. And here it's glorified. Later on, when we know what the consequences are, it's showed us a little bit more serious. Um, and that's the thing is, is 
like the idea of going on the road, as we said, like is perfectly fine. And even the idea of finding yourself is fine. But he also, he, he is rebelling against something and he is running from something. He doesn't merely want to find himself. He also wants to lose himself. It's worth noting. He starts using a different, a completely different name early on in his trip. Instead of Chris McCandless, he goes by Alexander Supertramp, which admittedly is fun to say. Which was the name of the lead singer from Supertramp. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, Uh, so it's really just a band about him. That's <laughs> yeah. really something. Yeah. Um, during, in, in like scenes in between what you see in the movie, that's where he recorded all the songs. Um, super Trent, then sent them back in time to the seventies. Yeah. And they became hugely popular. <laughs> but, and so, and that's the thing is he goes by Alex all the way through and he burns his ID, you know, the things that would make life much easier, mm-hmm. especially to do the things he needs to do. Yeah. Um, he gets rid of all of that, but then it's worth noting that at the end of the film, there's a big emphasis on calling something by its true name, and then he writes essentially a like a letter. It's not very long, but just a letter and signs it, Chris McCandless. Yeah, when he knows that he's yeah. that he's going to die and that someone's going to find it. And I do like that moment in the movie. There's yeah. that that return. Like I, I like that, but. Again, in the in the destroying IDs and such like that, I feel like that comes from that same idea of bucking society that I think is that I think the filmmaker identifies with and maybe agrees with wholly that I feel like needs to be rethought because mm-hmm. it's the same thing that bothers me when when for some instance, if someone were to say like, like you recognize your error in saying, oh, what would it be like to live in this little town that's right. on the side of the road? There are people that actually live there. Mm-hmm. Their life is not a vacation. Their life is right. not an idyllic, yeah. like uh, uh, free from society thing. Yeah. And I think uh, especially people in bigger cities like Los Angeles tend to think that way. Yeah. And and I feel like we should resent that type of thinking because there, there's a certain – there are a lot of people that have sacrificed a lot for you to get to the point where you can have an ID that keeps you, that means people know who you are and that gets you a certain amount of rights, at least in this country. Right. Um, and to, to reject that because you feel like it's tying you to this negative society, mm-hmm. I feel like is not under, is not understanding what society is, is, uh, is taking, taking for granted, I guess, some of the gifts that we have from society as a whole. And um, to maybe go into a little bit of the themes that we'd like to talk to about it, uh, maybe reject some of the community that we have. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, like my saying is like, oh, I just want to live in this town and just live a simple life. Like that's a condescending attitude. And it really is no different. Like you hear the term slumming. And uh, now that term has come to mean a lot of, come to stand for a lot of things, but it comes primarily from the idea of somebody who is middle class or upper middle class or upper class, like going to the slums of the city and being like, wow, this is, isn't it romantic? Yeah. Like just over and, and by the way, like I, I, that's, it's that instinct that I dislike so much, uh, and I think we all have a tendency to do that. Yeah. You know, we look at people and be like, oh, man, you're the one that has it figured out. It's like, I'm not choosing to live here. Yeah. I have to live here. 
you're choosing to live here because you think it's quaint. Thanks for that, by the way. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's attitudes like that that you'll find from time to time in in films, and which is one of the reasons I do not like the movie the movie Grindhouse, where both Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino, who were shaped by Grindhouse movies, but have moved far beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they return to it and they're like, we're going to make a Grindhouse movie and we're going to have it be just like that experience. We're going to we're going to have like a, a, a missing reel, you know, uh, because that's what it was like. It's like, yeah, people didn't like that. Yeah. There you have... like that because you romanticize it now. People then were like, come on, I paid money for this. Yeah. Or there might have been filmmakers who killed themselves because of the uh, <laughs> poor success of films like that. Yeah. And so it's so that like the idea of slumming is, is and which I'm not sure if I'd say that's what Chris is doing, but to a certain extent, maybe. Like the idea of, I mean, there it is, and it's also like, I would say that Chris is is like sort of a philosophically liberal person, but you will also find it in conservatives. The idea it's like ah, these spoiled kids, they just got to go back and live in the you know, yeah. live in the wild, and then Work they'll the have an appreciation for, for it, and it's just like, ah. They don't need to do that. Yeah. You know, um, and so it's, it's, uh, I think it's an instinct that transcends political philosophy or, or spiritual philosophy. Yeah. I think it's just, uh, I think we all have that tendency. I, I think it's an element of that tendency to think that there is, there is a perfect world somewhere. Yeah. That like, it's, we like to make the excuse for ourselves that like, well, my situation is bad because I'm in the wrong place or, mm. Uh, another movie that dealt with that idea was Midnight in Paris. Was mm-hmm. thinking I'm in this I'm in this wrong uh, time. Like if yeah. I had existed a hundred years ago, that would have been the right time. That would have been when things were great. And so I don't know. I feel like we as humans have this tendency to. I, I think it's it's born in us because we know from a Christian standpoint, we know that something else is meant for us. That this isn't mm-hmm. really where we belong. And so, um, I think we can mistake that feeling in ourselves um we can mistakenly take that feeling that's in us and and think that that's that it's true for some place on earth that there is a mm-hmm. place on earth that we can find that's going to fix all the problems that we have that's going to keep us from uh like like the the hippie community that they have as if as if living there is going to keep people from uh being materialistic or or from from hating right. each other or for uh, you know having all the things that drag down a society and it's 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 almost the idea that uh some some cultures some i don't know some places some occupations are just purer than yeah. others it's and like it's the like, noble savage idea yeah which is a the mo- the most condescending of ideas yeah. by the way um and it's just uh yeah and and it's like human nature is such that people are always going to be pretty rough and they can also be pretty good. Right. Um, now we think that we believe that there is a fallen nature that everybody has. So when people are good, it's not because they are good in their course because this person happens to believe something or whatever um, that causes them to want to do good things. And that's fine. But like you can find those people everywhere just as you can find um, jerks everywhere. Um, and you can find people that will destroy each other, uh, just as much in cutthroating or cutthroat CEOs as you can in a, uh, commune. Yeah. It's, it's, it's people. 
And uh, there's a, I think, a, well, now that I've said it, I guess I'll link to it uh, in the post, which means I think I have to upload it. I'm not sure. Okay. Um, uh, Tim Keller has a sermon that I love, and it's about Jonah mm-hmm. um, and his attitude towards Nineveh and speaking about, and, and you will find, by the way, this attitude in the Christian community of big cities, you got to avoid them. Mm-hmm. Big cities, that's where the liberals are. That's where Babylon is. That's where, yeah. And the whores of Babylon. <laughs> um, so you got to avoid them. And it's like, no, cities are full of people. God loves people. So perhaps that's precisely where we should be. Mm. Uh, you know, and so, you know, Christians are certainly not uh, immune from this attitude of like, no, things are better. Yeah. Uh, things are purer. Things are more holy over here. It's like, well, people are more like you. And I guess you will find that pleasing and you'll find more diversity of ideas, races, uh, choices mm-hmm. in the city. And that is uncomfortable at times, but God loves those people just as much as anybody else. So maybe that's where we should be, mm-hmm. um, where some people should be. Not everybody should be, you know, is called to live in a city. Exactly. But um, so, uh, so we've sort of talked about the the philosophy of the film a little bit and we've talked about some of the some of the technical elements. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything that I would single out. I kind of, some people really don't like the score and the music. I think it's good. I think it works. Yeah. I have, I have no problem. With it's it. by uh, Michael Brook and uh, the score is by Michael Brook and then songs by uh, Eddie Vedder mm-hmm. from uh, Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam. Yeah. Isn't that nice? <laughs> anyway, so uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what I meant by that, but, uh, yeah, I, I actually, I, I in watching it again, I was like, I feel like I could uh, own this score. It has a nice, it kind of has a folksy quality yeah. to it. Yeah, um, I enjoyed it. Uh, the acting is pretty, is uniformly good all around. Uh, even somebody like Vince Vaughn, who I think is a limited actor, mm. I think is very good in his role. And oddly enough, you bring up the, the scene where Chris gets him riled up. Mm-hmm. I don't, this might be the limitations of Vince Vaughn, but I don't think so. I think it's Vince Vaughn playing the character as if, like, almost getting, like, mock riled up. Like, it's like, absolutely, yo, society, just, like, playing it up, uh, you know, out of regard for this young man that he enjoys, but that he really just doesn't care that much. I mean, he's kind of crazy a little bit doesn't he talk about like roswell at some point or something that's true he does say something like so that. like he, he has I'm, so he does have that but like uh when he's like yelling society it's almost like he's saying like ah yes let's rail against this thing that is a more of a concept than anything and uh yeah good call let's not get specific at all um that's that's how I took it. It might be, like I said, it might be the limitations of Vince Vaughn as an actor, but I I think it's a choice he's making. It could be, but um, I, I I enjoy the acting for the most part. Although I I I'm not a fan of Emil Hirsch. I don't know. Like some of the things that you said, I I agree with. I feel like he, I think you were saying he takes the character very seriously, and mm-hmm. I, I feel like I I can see that. I think the main things that I don't like is for some reason uh, there are points where either the script is just terrible for about a minute or uh, Sean Penn is encouraging Emil Hirsch to, to ad-lib. And I, I really don't like those scenes. I feel like he comes off as very unnatural um, to me. There's, there's one scene where he's sitting on a bridge eating an apple mm-hmm. and he's talking about how good the apple is. And it's like a super apple. Yeah. And 
I hate that scene. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, and, and then it, it ends with him looking straight into the camera, which I think is a stylistic choice that doesn't go with the rest of the movie. And I, I, yeah, that is not something someone should do lightly. Is uh, is include that? Like, there's really only a handful of movies where that's done well. Where it's done well. JFK, yeah. I think, is is an important one mm-hmm. that works well. Do you know the scene I'm talking about? Uh is it something where the the basic idea of the moment is like you, the viewers, have to decide what's happened? Yes. Yeah. It's at the end of uh, Kevin Costner's uh, summation in court, and then the last thing he says is it's up to you, and he just glances very br- – and, and it's also just the briefest of looks. Yeah. And just – the min- so that the minute he says you, he's looking right at the camera, and then he moves on. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's like something like that at the end – of that long speech and this idea of like searching for truth and demanding more of your politicians and such. Like, I feel like it earns that moment and it should, and it something like that should be, you should kind of point the finger at the audience. Whereas like with that, I kind of, I like that scene, but not for reasons one would think (laughs) I like that scene because I think it shows the, the immaturity and the general obliviousness of the character that he is still, no matter uh, for all the sound and fury that he has about like society and things and all that, he is still just kind of a kid and is immature. Um, but then to punctuate that with like uh, a look at the camera, it's like that's you, you can't do that lightly. You can't do that casually. It me- needs to mean something. And in that moment, I don't know what it means. Yeah. And I don't think that is a flaw with my thinking because mm. I can usually come a meaning out of almost anything, whether it's there <laughs> or not. Um, <laughs> So make of that what you will. That might be a flaw in me. I'm not sure. But, um, but, uh, and, and that's the thing is like, I, I actually feel like that scene, I could see it being ad lib, no question, Mm. but I do think it flows with the character, specifically the negative parts of the character that I don't like. Not as a function of the arti- the character as an artistic creation, but who he is as a person. Mm-hmm. Just like, oh, yeah, I could see him doing that. You know what I mean? Just using words like organic yeah, and that kind of thing. If you eat organic scene. food, I have nothing against you. No, no. Yeah. But, but even in that moment when he uses the word organic, it seems to me like Emil Hirsch has done the littlest bit of research to know that people like uh, who might go off on a on a like – trip to get away from society would be interested in organic food for some reason or other and he throws that in because that's like a buzzword like that's what it, that's how it reads to me and maybe that's me being overly cynical but uh, I don't know. it might be that also I, and you know what and this I know not, I, I've not done any research so maybe I don't know but like it's I recognize that the word organic was not created in the last 10 or 15 years but it feels like it has only become a buzzword in the last 10 or 15 years this was like 92 yeah 91 92 and I feel like there was not quite such an emphasis on something being organic and if it was I feel like the word wouldn't have been organic yeah but I don't know that but that's I say that based on nothing <laughs> Based on the fact that I just wasn't really aware of it yeah. until recently. If someone from Portland were to come to me and tell me, like, listen, everything in Portland's been organic for about 30 years, I might be like, that's possible. I've never been there. That's- we know some people from Portland. I'll have to ask I'll have to ask the people that I know. Yeah. Hey, what, is, uh, what about the food up there? Is there anything that's not organic? And what did they call it? Did they say organic or natural? 
They said uh, organic. All right. Okay, I'll cut that part out of the episode. By now, they might be just chucking the word organic because it's too... To uh, it's been co-opted by the government, by the by society, the, by the corporate machine. Oh, good! Now we're getting into this. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I actually I'm surprised how much I liked uh, Emil uh, Emil Hirsch's uh, performance. But I can see why some people wouldn't. I, I, I you're certainly not the only one. There, there are other people that uh, that might actually be more inclined to like the movie and agree with it philosophically more than we do who don't like his performance. Hmm. Um, but I think it's charismatic and energetic, and I, I, I feel like there's a real understanding of who Chris McCandless was uh, as just a, a magnetic personality that mm-hmm. you know people seem to remember and respond to. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting. When, when I came to you uh, wanting to talk about this movie for an episode... I did not have a companion film in mind. Uh, I was thinking in terms of like maybe a road movie, but there wasn't, there weren't a lot, there's not a lot of road movies out there that deal with the themes and the philosophies that this film does. And I was thinking Grizzly Man, but that's too, a little too recent, I think. There, when, when did Grizzly Man come out? I want to say like 2005? 2005. Maybe? Okay. So, yeah. So that's only a contemporaries, really. Yeah, it was made two years before Into the Wild, you know. So I didn't want to want to do that. And then you suggested a movie that worked, I feel like immediately, which was uh, Wes Anderson's Rushmore in from nineteen ninety eight. And you did you have to? It seemed like you didn't have to think really hard about it. Like you jumped, uh, you jumped to that pretty quick. I I seem to remember. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why that came to me so quickly. But as soon as uh, I had the thought of it, I realized you you have in these two characters kind of two very similar people. Mm-hmm. Um, their ideologies might be different, but they mm-hmm. do almost the same thing in uh, rejecting the people that they have around them and rejecting yeah. their community and what they might have to gain from that um, in order to follow something in themselves. And there's a reinvention of the self as well. Yeah. Um, and then both characters uh the character he's referring to is max fisher in rushmore played by jason schwartzman and just both characters are smart and likable and Mm -hmm. charismatic and have like insecurity issues they have uh maybe some bitterness issues and a desire to just be alone even when they're with people yeah like they kind of hold people at arm's length a little bit and i think they see more so max than than chris the like how you can use people yeah Yeah. um i think they both have sort of a sense of superiority to them yeah i think so Um, i think it's more obvious with max because he seems to even the people around him even his father he seems to look down on yeah um with chris it's a little more subtle but i think he does see because he sees himself almost on like a crusade like a holy journey of some kind like because he's he's doing this like he sees that as as a i don't know well and he's right to do and and he's like spouting his philosophy and being yeah. like, "Look, you need to understand. I, at age twenty three, I've I get it." Yeah. And by the way, I'm 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 okay with the idea that there is a 
mutual benefit from his being involved with these people that he says something that they benefit from and they say something that he would benefit from if he listened. Mm -hmm. And I like the idea that he's not listening. This would be a much more mutual thing if he recognized that he wasn't just showing up, dropping some knowledge on people and leaving. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it's that kind of frustrating because I think a really a good friendship is one that neither requires something from somebody all the time or it's just like I'm going to help this guy out and he's going to be so happy with me. Yeah. All right. And I and I stand to gain nothing from him. Yeah. Um which is kind of the way Max Fisher operates. So yeah. He's got he's got all these people around him that uh, they're like his acolytes sort of. And he yeah. doesn't uh he doesn't see himself as gaining anything from them, but they are yeah. there to build him up. Yeah. And oh, he he can get things from them. <laughs> exactly. Like money or admiration or something. But, Whether they uh, be younger students or the director of the school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and just the way that he seems to sort of dictate uh, right. to them uh, yeah. what he needs. Like, I want to build an aquarium. I need $35,000. <laughs> and he's just like, I'll give you 2500 <laughs> I love that scene. Um, but, uh, yeah, and I remember the... It's and, and yeah, it, it's not a perfect parallel, but it is quite a bit. And I think the characters are also it's so the characters are young. And I feel like that makes a big difference. And I don't mean to say that when you're young you don't understand things. I think there are some things that you understand very well when you're young and maybe even lose sight of when you get older. Yeah. But um <clears throat> but at the same time there just by virtue of not having lived very long. And I say that as somebody who's 30 and I recognize I haven't lived very long. Um, you just, you don't, you don't have as much perspective on life. Everything seems to be a big deal. Mm -hmm. Now that's fine. I'm okay with that being a big deal. As I think I said, uh, in a previous episode, um, I remember in, in high school, I, I had some there were some people that were like going through a breakup and everybody in the theater department knew about it. And, uh, I remember my, uh, theater teacher was commenting. He's like, ah, if only they knew that this kind of thing isn't that important. And what I wanted to say, but, uh, didn't, but what I thought in the moment was like, well, it's important to them. Yeah. You're in your forties, you know, like you're married and have children. You know that people will move on from their first big breakup, but you have to let people have that. Right. You have to let you have to let it be the most important thing in the world to them at that moment. Otherwise, they won't gain the perspective. Yeah. But they still don't have it yet. Right. Um, I, I don't like the idea of downplaying somebody's anybody's suffering because it could be worse or it will be yeah. worse, which I think is a thing that people have a tendency to do a whole lot. But like, just because the struggles that both Chris and uh, Max are going through now might in the long run be not as important. Um, it's important to them in that moment. So just because yeah. it could be worse or will be worse um, doesn't mean that it doesn't, it isn't affecting them right now. So that's, I feel like for both of those characters, we do need to have sympathy with the, the problems that they're going through and mm-hmm. the, the difficulties that they're having, even if we ultimately feel like they don't handle them in the best way. Yeah. I mean, with, with Max, I mean, he falls in love with an older woman and it's worth noting that he grew up without a mother. Mm. Maybe there's a correlation, (laughs) Um, but uh, Hey, who am I to say? I'm not a psychiatrist Um, yet yet. I'm working on it. I'm chipping away at it (laughs) Uh, through podcasting. There you go. 
it counts these days. It's I heard it's just like getting into some kind of union, you know, like if you log enough hours of podcasting, yeah. then you can they just give you a psychology. That's degree. how it works with the University of Phoenix. So um, <laughs> I apologize if you got a degree from the University of Phoenix or something. Is, I, I need to start making an apology tally for this episode. I feel like we're at five or six right now. Yeah, I do apologize when I when. Uh, like Josh and I are friends, so we tend to be a little flippant uh, about things, and we know that we're joking. But <laughs> you are not friends with us, unless you want to be. Hey, Tyler, more than one lesson dot com. I got a lot lie. of time. Um, <laughs> I don't have that much, but uh, but yeah, and so I, and it's easy to forget that there's a microphone microphone in front of you, hmm. and uh, so yes, so when when I do like say something, and then I I say an apology shortly thereafter, and the apology doesn't sound. Uh, sincere it is uh i do actually mean that apology and i also hope you know that i am joking when i say stuff like that and i don't actually mean it so okay moving on uh so yeah um we do have uh, a number of uh bible verses and such to to get here but uh but yeah the i think it's worth noting that both max and chris they do something that I that I think is, well, I don't think it's specific to the young, but I think when you're older, you recognize that it's not quite so much an option, which is when you face relational problems, you want to just retreat. You want mm-hmm. to run away. Now, sometimes that means, for some people they interpret that as physically running away as Chris does or with Max just emotionally withdrawing from the relationship. And either way it is a retreat. And I think when you get older, you understand like, well, that's not an option for me. I, you know, that's not what an adult does. An adult deals with it, tries to fix it as much as possible and moves on. You know, you have a responsibility to, this is something that I was thinking of earlier, um, but I wasn't sure if I was going to say it, but I've, uh, arrived there. Um, which is a lot of people focus on, you have a responsibility to the ones that you love, which I would agree with, but I also think you have, and this, I'm, this is maybe a, uh, prickly point i'm not even sure if you're going to agree with it i think you also have a responsibility to the people that love you um that doesn't necessarily mean you should let them define you because somebody could love the idea of you and not actually love you and and if you cater to that person in every way well then you know you're making a big mistake but i think you know love is a difficult thing like you have you love somebody for all their faults. Otherwise, I don't think it's love. I think it's convenience. But that's that's my personal opinion. Um, and so if somebody has taken the time and the considerable effort to invest in you as a relative, as a friend, as a, you know, girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife, then chances are you love them too and that's fine. But your love isn't the only thing that matters. If they've taken the time and put in the effort to love you, despite all your foibles and faults, I feel like you should 
try to take their feelings into consideration when you do things. And you may need you, you may need to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. But just casting them to the wind, as I think Chris does, yeah. and I think Max does. Yeah. Um, I'd say, well, both of them, but like in this case, like Max, it's all about what he wants. It's all about who he loves. Right. And if he loves them, it doesn't matter what they want. It doesn't matter what they need. <laughs> it only matters what he wants. Yeah. Which is an interestingly selfish portrait of love. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing is a lot of people, I think a lot of people um, romanticize certain aspects of love, like the idea of personal fulfillment, which is there and it's a part of it, but it's not the only part of it. But right. when there's too much emphasis on love as personal fulfillment, then it becomes me over my personal fulfillment over everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that's, and, and I think by the end of both films, you get these uh, characters who, while Chris's story is much more tragic because he does not get the opportunity to reconnect mm-hmm. with his, uh, his loved ones. He does come to an understanding of, I've made a mistake yeah. and I've, and these people may have hurt me, but I have hurt them now too. Yeah. Uh, and perhaps I've hurt them worse because now they don't even have the opportunity. We don't have the opportunity to fix it because yeah. of what I've done. And then with Max's character, he's seen as turning around enough so that he does some, he does things for people uh, not expecting anything in return. Right. Um, be, just because they are people in his life um, that he cares for. And so he does things that, you know, to be loving to them. And uh, what I like out of that also is he, he gets a benefit out of it that probably he wasn't, especially as narcissistic as he starts in the film, he probably wasn't expecting. Yeah. And I think that, uh, that illustrates, in a way, the benefit that can be gained from community. Yeah. Um, that it's not just a responsibility that we have, but it is a gift that we have as well. Um, there are some uh, Bible verses I want to talk about in regards to um, to youth and some of the uh, instincts that can come out of that. Um one is Second Timothy 2.22. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Now, that's the, NI, that's the, the new international version. I don't know how new it is anymore, but that's all right. <laughs> um, there is another uh, translation um, that I don't usually like because it's, I mean, it's pretty loose, but that's all right. Sometimes they phrase things a way that I, that I really like um and it's called the message and so this is once again second timothy 222 run away from infantile indulgence run after mature righteousness faith love peace joining those who are in honest and serious prayer before god and there's something about infantile indulgence the fr- <laughs> like that phrasing um and then run after mature righteousness um you know, we are like when we're young, of course, we can't help that. But as we get older, I think we do need to leave behind certain 
younger attitudes. And I think one of them is this idea, this a lack of understanding and a lack of, I don't know, just not, not cutting older, older generations slack. Mm-hmm. Like you run across that a lot. It's just like, ah, these old guys, you know, I mean, you run across it with, uh, in into the wild when he's talking with, uh, Hal Holbrook's character. He, he clearly has affection for him. There's mm-hmm. no question about that, but he sums things up so easily for his, uh, his older friend. Yeah. You know, it's like, ah, you're just sitting on your butt, not doing what I'm doing. I'm young and great. Yeah. Um, and so like, meanwhile, you know, Ron is just trying to live a peaceful life, a peaceful and humble life, which there's nothing necessarily wrong with. He, he could very well be running from something and just sort of hiding from life. That's entirely possible, but there's nothing inherently wrong with, Staying where you are, yeah, and li- you know, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. I'm not totally sure where uh, what verse that is, but that's in there somewhere mm-hmm. in the Bible. Um, yeah, Bible, you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the th- and so I will. Uh, I'll throw this one in there as well. It's First Timothy, verse uh, uh, chapter five, verses one and two. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Um, I like that one because it speaks it it specifies uh, older as well because I think that's that's our instinct. Um, but then it also says to treat everybody as if they were your family. But then what happens if, like Chris McCandless, you don't like your family? Yeah. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, um, so then we move into this idea of forgiveness which is spoken of overtly and into the wild and then is sort of (laughs) touched upon in rushmore by using the song by is it the who it's the who yeah uh i believe the song is called a quick one while he's away yeah (laughs) which is uh delightful but the a something that is repeated over and over in the song is uh you are forgiven yeah it is said during a what can only be referred to as the revenge montage of the film, <laughs> which where, is a, a, a hilarious little ironic moment where yeah. you get to see Max uh, doing all these terrible things to uh, uh, Bill Murray's character Bloom. What's his name? Herman Bloom. Herman Bloom. Yeah. Um, and then those things being reciprocated back and forth. Yeah. And I realize we haven't actually like summed up or really talked about Rushmore. I'm going to assume you've seen it. Yeah. If you're listening to this, if you haven't, I'll sum up very briefly. Uh, this very gifted, uh, charismatic uh, 15-year-old in a uh, private high school befriends uh, an, an older guy, but then also develops a crush on an older teacher, and he tries to pursue things with that, but... Um, she's much more interested in this older guy. And so it hurts Max's feelings. And he, uh, decides he wants to get revenge on his, uh, older friend played by Bill Murray in order. And he also wants to win. (laughs) He wants to win back this teacher, even though she was never with him. (laughs) It's, uh, and it's, so it's, and it's a Wes Anderson film. And so of course, uh, the art direction is, uh, very, precise and purposeful and yeah. that kind of thing. So, um, and just, uh, great acting all around, uh, Jason yeah, Schwartzman. I can't put him on the map. Bill Murray. It, it 
started an entire new phase of his career. Yeah. Um, and it's got that sort of, uh, as far as the writing, it's got that sort of dry wit that you would expect yeah. from Wes Anderson that's very enjoyable. Um, so, okay, that, so that was a, a, a little tangent to talk about that film. And if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. Um, but yeah, uh, so forgiveness is something that's that's mentioned in some way in both films. And I think that I mentioned, I've mentioned Tim Keller a couple of times in, in this episode, but he does have a sermon somewhere, I don't remember what it is, in which he talks about that when you don't forgive somebody, what it often comes down to is, like, for example, if Josh, like, hurt my feelings because he said something thoughtless. Now, my feelings are still hurt and I'm still upset, but I've been thoughtless before. I've hurt people's feelings before. It's understandable. I can forgive you. Like, now we should forgive some, forgive people for anything, but nonetheless, it's, forgiveness in that instance is easy. Mm-hmm. When we don't forgive, ultimately what we're saying is, I could never do what you did. It is impossible. I cannot conceive of myself being as hurtful as you were to me. And indeed, that person has been hurtful to you. But you take this, you know, I mean, you mentioned earlier about this superiority idea, which is, that is beneath me. Mm -hmm. You've hurt me in a way that I could never hurt you back because it's it is not it's not in me because yeah. I'm just so great. Yeah. Um, now no one actually thinks that, but that is kind of what it is. Like when you understand, that is why there there's a, an emphasis in Christianity on human failing mm-hmm. and the fact that we are all sinful is that because in the same book that says you need to forgive other people and you've been forgiven. Like, it does need to be understood that it's like, you, nothing is beyond you. You are capable of anything. Mm-hmm. You are Noah Cross from <laughs> Chinatown. Yeah. In the right circumstances, you're capable of anything. Um, and once you under, and even though you haven't done it, and you possibly might never do it, you are able to do it. You are yeah. capable of it. That, and an understanding of that, I think, can cause a, a, an understanding, if only abstract, that this person that has wronged you, you could just as easily wrong them in the same way. Yeah. So, um, so I think you get these characters who are kind of prideful, self-centered, and have a pretty high opinion of themselves. And I think when they are wronged, the lack of forgiveness just sort of flows naturally, mm-hmm. organically, one could say, Ooh. out of them. <laughs> um, and so I do. Want, so there are a few uh, verses here that I wanted to read about forgiveness. Um, Josh, let's, let's, I'll throw one to you. You can read, uh, you can read second Corinthians. I'll do that. All right. This is from uh, second Corinthians two verses five through eight. It says, if anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment, punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him, so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. And I don't think I was ever really familiar with that. I mean, that's one part of a larger passage, of course, but Mm -hmm. I I don't think I was ever familiar with that idea. It's just like the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Like, 
there will be consequences. If somebody does something wrong, there will be consequences. Right. And so, in some way. Yeah. And so, knowing that, you can forgive him. There will be justice in some way. Yeah. And uh, that's interesting because it also, I mean, it, it shows that it's not, it's not just, like, we don't just forgive and then we're done. Like, there is a consequence. There are mm-hmm. consequences for actions. But knowing that there are those consequences, what we can do for someone is is forgive them. And that's, that's uh, a kindness that we can do to someone. Um, I will read Galatians 6, uh, verses 1 through 5. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each one should carry their own load. Now that sounds... Very individualistic, very Mm -hmm. focused on yourself, take pride in yourself alone and that sort of thing. Um, But it's more about this idea of – well, I I read various uh, interpretations online. um, And as with anything, you need to compare it to other things in the Bible. Uh, Because if you look at that, it's just like, all right, carry your own load. Everything's fine. That's not really what the overall Bible says. So in the context of the Bible where it is about community and it is about forgiving others and taking on others' burden, um, you know, so what does this mean? And to me, the thing that I find interesting in the midst of it is if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. And I sort of take that as if you think you're better than other people if you think you're without sin you're wrong you're deceiving yourself you should test your own actions like Mm -hmm. take a look at yourself and that's something that i don't think chris ever does yeah and i know max doesn't yeah um they're so busy focusing on the ways in which they have been uh wronged that they they fail almost completely to see oh wow i've done things maybe even exponentially worse Mm -hmm. um in that case, I'd say more Max than Chris, but abandonment and lack of forgiveness can be pretty rough, and that's what Chris does. Um, and then the uh, the last one here, uh, you can read it, uh, the Ephesians one. I will. This is uh, from Ephesians 4, it's verses 31 and 32. It says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ for God forgave you. So, uh, you know, that one speaks pretty uh, easily and pretty definitively mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, when you don't forgive, you will be, I think, susceptible to bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander. Like, it just, it, I don't know, it just causes hate in a person, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. And I think it causes paranoia. Because yeah. you will come to see that everyone, like if you're holding grudges against everyone, because sooner or later, everyone you know is going to let you down. Mm-hmm. And then you just assume that people are out to get you somehow. And there may be a sense of a sense of righteousness. I, I think in the characters that we're looking at, it's often because of this uh, superiority that they, that they have. But um, even outside of that, it can happen with people where you feel like you, you are righteous in, in, uh, 
in being upset with somebody. You you may feel righteous in your bitterness, rage, and anger towards a mm-hmm. person. You may even feel righteous in your slander towards another person. But yeah. to to see that in not forgiving someone, you are acting out bitterness, rage, and anger. To, to see that that may lead to brawling or slander, as the text says. And to see that it is not being kind and compassionate. Um I think we need to oftentimes we need to examine our situations and and say and realize whether or not we're forgiving someone and if we're not how it can be leading to all of these things. There's a line that I love it's from a Clint Eastwood film in which uh somebody he and uh, this other uh kid it's a western is that every which way but loose. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> it's uh in which he and uh, this kid they they kill these two guys that uh, like cut up uh, some prostitutes. So these guys have done terrible things, and they kill them for the uh, for the uh, reward. Yeah, reward money. Um, but then they feel really bad about it afterwards. Or the kid, he's never killed anybody before, and he feels terrible about it. And but he's trying to make it okay. So he's like, "Well, I guess they had it coming." At which point, Clint Eastwood says the definitive line of the film, which is, "We all have it coming." Hmm. The name of that film is Unforgiven, <laughs> incidentally. Um, and so I withheld that. I wanted it to be a payoff. Ooh. But, um, but it's true. Mm-hmm. I mean, because when you, you know, the idea of slander, like righteously slandering someone. Mm-hmm. I can't think of, like, slander is wrong. Everyone knows it is. It means you're saying an, uh, something that isn't true about somebody. The only way you could ever justify that is... They have it coming. Yeah. It's okay for me to do something wrong because what they did is much worse. Yeah. They deserve it. They deserve it. And what we're saying here is we all have it coming. Yeah. And and so like and often when we are most convinced of our own righteousness, that's usually when we do the absolute worst things to the people around us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that at the end of the film, I think Chris understands. Uh, and I and I think Max understands it as well, um, and so that's when we what we can uh, get out of these films, and and it is worth noting. Uh, uh, we mentioned it earlier. A scene that uh, Josh said uh, maybe the only scene in the film he likes. Um, <laughs> see, now I'm over exaggerating. Uh, the scene at the end where Chris finally embraces his own name, uh, and in that there is forgiveness. There is him saying, because by abandoning his first and last name, he is saying, I want no part of my family. They have hurt me. They have hurt each other. I don't want to, I don't even want to be associated with them. And at the end saying, these are just people. They love me, even if they hurt me. And I love them, and I want to be a part of them. I want to be a part of the community that I have been trying to run from. Um, And then at the end of Rushmore, uh, Herman, played by Bill Murray, who has uh, stolen away uh, Max's (laughs) not-girlfriend, a teacher, Uh, but at the end, Max does have a girlfriend that is his own age, Mm -hmm. and they're at a uh, party, and... And Herman asks if he can dance with her. And and she says, ah, Mr. Bloom, I'm spoken for. And then Max says, it might be kind of an on-the-nose line, but I like it. Where he's like, he goes, it's all right. He's, he's my friend. 
Yeah. And then he willingly gives away his girlfriend in this moment just for a dance. Right. But it's symbolic seeing as yeah. this is the person who stole this very thing away. Well, in his mind, at least yeah. this very thing away from him before. Yeah. And so to, I know it, it betrays a sense of trust in him. That yeah. is, that is really interesting. And I, I just love, I love the way that film ends because it emphasizes so much this, like his world and the people around him by slow, the way the camera slowly tracks back to, to reveal essentially every character that's been in the movie. Yeah. I, I think, I think it's everyone shows up in there in some yeah, way in this, so. in this tableau and it's just very, uh, very celebratory, which I, I love. And it's, and it's an understanding because throughout the film, we see curtains that they open, but then we see like September, October and the, and the, the camera pulls out, you see a tableau of every character in the film curtains close mm-hmm. and that scene, And it's, it's quite literally a curtain call of like all the characters yeah. and, but clearly that's how Max sees his life. Yeah. I mean, he puts on plays right? and he sees his life sort of as a play and he's the main character. And by pulling back and allowing everybody, even the people he doesn't really like yeah. to sort of take a bow, he acknowledges the role that they played in his life. Yeah. And, and in his all eventual the story that it's yeah. not just him. And so, and there is, a, and there's an understanding of that at the end of, uh, of into the wild where we see like the various people that he's met along the way, but then also his family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, like unforg- unforgiveness, which apparently isn't a real word. Thanks a lot. Clint Eastwood. Um, <laughs> But uh, unforgiveness, like, can just, it can isolate you and it can cut you off from the people that you love, the people that love you. It can cut you off from God and you just wind up bitter and alone and angry and probably wondering how you got there. So, forgiveness is also incredibly difficult to do, but, you know, I guess you uh, pray for strength in that instance and, uh, you know, it's uh, it's very difficult, but it is also remarkably freeing. Mm-hmm. So, when you forgive, God's light shines on you. That's uh, a, li- a line from from Into the Wild, directed by Sean Penn. Screenplay and directed by Sean Penn. <laughs> so, um, all right. So uh, there hasn't been anything really new on the website lately. Uh, I'm expecting a review of Forrest Gump at some point. Who's doing that? For? I don't remember. Somebody unreliable. Mm, okay. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> just a joke. Know. I'll course. break his knees. <laughs> oh man, that'd be awesome <laughs> if you broke your own knees. Um, <laughs> There's that voice. I deserve this. <laughs> um, but there is a there is a, a, a kind of a fun thing. Uh, from every few years, I will reassess my hundred favorite movies of all time, and. Uh, uh, few weeks ago i did it again uh i think the last time i did it and posted it on the more than one lesson website was in uh, 2009 or 2010 and uh so i've done it once again there's a lot of new additions to it so you can go to more than one lesson.com read through that list what have you seen what haven't you seen and then you can uh, the stuff you haven't seen you can put on your own list of movies to see there you go um then you can always go to, you can join the More Than One Lesson group on Facebook. I don't talk about that very often, but uh, that's where any updates are. Not that there are very many, as I just said. Um, 
You can follow me on Twitter. That's twitter.com slash morelessons. You can email me, as I said, tyler at morethanonelesson.com. You can email Josh, josh at morethanonelesson.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at the Josh Long. At the Josh Long. So, um, yeah, thank you everybody for, uh, for listening. And uh, Josh, thanks for being here. Thanks for, yeah. Thank you for that. <laughs> and we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.